when talking about innovative finance, there's one concept that's had by far the biggest impact on sustainable development. And it's not even that new. It took off in the early 90s, and it's been responsible for bringing financial inclusion to millions of the world's poorest people. Of course, I'm talking about microfinance. And while it's now a mature concept that's been through boom and bust, it's evolving to not only offer small loans to those with limited assets, but also to support the businesses and entrepreneurs that might otherwise have been overlooked by traditional banks. Today's guest is at the vanguard of modern microfinance. Kat Dunn is CEO of Grameen Australia, and she has some big lofty goals for shifting our concept of banking to give those who don't have the backing of hard assets an alternative route to access loans and capital. Kat is guest number seven here on Good Future, where I ask the big questions about the future of business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. I really liked the flow of this conversation. Kat knows her stuff, and she filled a whole bunch of gaps in my knowledge about the subtleties of microfinance, how much impact it really has, and of course, how they manage the risk of default. But Kat also opened up about the big move she made, leaving a role with a major fund manager. She stepped off the corporate ladder and she took a leap of faith, following her heart and her need for purpose, rather than clinging to the security of a big salary. And if that really speaks to you, be sure to stick around until the end, when Kat gives us a rundown of another personal project she's working on called Fear of Failure, or F Off, which runs events and mentoring about how to push through the fear that's getting in the way of your goals. All right, I'm keen to dive into this one. If you enjoy it, leave me a review on iTunes so I know you're out there, or jump onto my website at johntreadgold.com, where I've written some short articles from each episode that wrap up the key concepts as well as including any links that were mentioned. And of course, the details of all my guests' book recommendations are there as well. Enough out of me. Here we go. Microfinance is a word that I'm sure lots of people recognize. It's a perfect kind of example of financial innovation and social impact. Can you give us a rundown of how microfinance has evolved and maybe explain how it differs from a standard loan? Microfinance, certainly in the Grameen Australia universe, is the model that's been developed by Nobel laureate Professor Muhammad Yunus. And the problem that he was initially solving was when he was in Bangladesh, he would see that even though he's teaching this traditional type of economics at the university, he's walking outside and there's people dying of starvation. And it really pronounced to him how the theory wasn't helping these people meaningfully in practice. And the problem that it really solves for, unlike in traditional banking, is for poverty and financial exclusion. The microfinance model is different to traditional banking because there's one thing that banks will always need a borrower to have, and if they don't have it, they won't get lent to, and that's something called asset collateral. And that was the challenge for many of these low-income people. If they didn't have the cash flow and the assets, they weren't able to get the loan to actually have a chance at lifting those up. What Professor Yunus has done in terms of this model is instead of asset collateral, 
he thought, well, the problem that the banks or lenders need to solve is how do I incentivise to get my money back? And there's other ways other than punishing people with the threat of default to get their money back, and that is incentivising them to repay. So if the purpose is to solve for poverty and financial exclusion, how do we incentivise them to repay so that they know they can climb out of that situation? Well, why don't, instead of asset collateral, we get a group of people together and use something called social collateral? They're each individual borrowers with each individual businesses, but if they're lent to as a group, it means that not only do they have peer support around being able to talk about their challenges and be supported through the hard times, but they're also responsible to each member of the group if they don't pay back. So if they don't pay back, the group suffers and they're not able to get further loans, which further uh, enhance their livelihood. So this was a really interesting model because in the traditional banking system, you just have money. A lender lends to a borrower a certain amount of money, they get paid back interest, and there's asset collateral. With the microfinance model, there's not just the lending of the money from the lender to the borrower, but there's that notion of peer support because it's lending to a group of people. So there's that extra emotional and social buffer. Then there's ongoing mentoring, training and education. So there's business and financial literacy that is available to the clients of Grameen Bank that is unavailable in any other traditional banking institution. And then finally, and this is the difference, as a Grameen borrower, you sign up to something called the Social Development Agenda. And it is a code of conduct where each of the borrowers subscribe to a level of discipline and accountability to each other and their community. And this includes things like ensuring that you have a roof over your head, that you have sanitised toilets. But importantly, for so long as you're a Grameen borrower, you promise to keep your kids in school. So it is not just a lending process, but a way of lifting the social and political consciousness of an entire community and a way of educating an entire generation. Social collateral as a way to avoid default is really interesting. That was sort of a, a key question I had. And I you know, came across this back in my economics days um, at university. We understood the concept, but you know, that was the 90s. How, how has it sort of evolved and, and changed to today? Well, that's one of the things about this model is that every time they've been testing it in different countries, and it's been replicated over 100 times in over 50 countries, including in a developed country, which is in the United States of America, this model of social collateral continues to prove to be the secret source. It's really that group chemistry and the group bond that incentivizes the people in Grameen to be able to pay back their loans again and again. Globally, the repayment rates through this model are 97%. And in America, it's 99.95%. And interestingly, typically the borrowers are women. So there's that level of support and forging of strong reputations and the strong spirit of community that means this notion of social collateral has really stood the test of time and it seems to be a tool that can work across cultures and across languages and across decades. Is there any oversight on what people spend the money on? Does it matter if they're using it to pay off other loans or, or buying consumables like food and power? Well, this is the thing, right? With the Grameen loans, the terms are six months and they get paid back on a weekly basis. And on a weekly basis, because of the social collateral, the five women or the five entrepreneurs will come together in a group and talk about their business as they're paying back their principal, their interest and savings. When you're in those centre face-to-face meetings, if somebody doesn't come back and pay back their loan, then instantly you're able to adjust and understand, well, what was the reason for this? Um, have you got a cash flow issue? Is there a problem with your business model? Do you not have a market that you can sell enough to to make a profit 
to pay your loan back? Are you using the money in an inappropriate way? Because obviously it's meant for working capital. Has somebody in your family taken the money off you, for example, a husband? Or has the money been used for emergency means, like medical means? That's sort of the oversight and the governance. If it's not paid back on a weekly basis, then it's not just that individual business person that defaults, but the rest of the group as well. So there's a real internal self-governance and desire to make sure that each other is financially viable because it compromises all the other women. So there's um, almost a self-governance mechanism. That's the oversight, the interests of each of the entrepreneurs to ensure that each other doesn't default so that they can continue to lift up their livelihoods. On that issue of gender dynamics, women appear to be the main recipients of the loans or else they're the ones making best use of them. Is this by design? It was a data-driven outcome. Initially, we were, well, certainly in Bangladesh, um, Professor Yunus and his team went 50-50, 50% women, 50% men. And over time, what we found was that more and more of the loans would keep coming back more and more consistently through the women. And so we just went where it was more suitable. Um, So this was really a commercial decision. And we found that the data shows that when the men were offered these working capital loans, a lot of them would spend the profits on consumption. But when the women were in charge of the loans, they would spend it on more domestic and household goods and education and looking after the family. So that ended up having a greater material impact on the household incomes of the Grameen borrowers' loans. And then bringing that back to Grameen Australia, where you're the CEO, you took over the helm at the start of this year. Your key projects are all about building businesses to support development. Can you tell us a bit about those and how microfinance fits? We're actually very fortunate at Grameen Australia because we often get mistaken for Grameen Bank Australia. And actually, we're not a wholly owned subsidiary of Grameen Bank. We're an Australian-originated grassroots charitable organisation that's very much inspired by the work of Professor Yunus. And indeed, these 100 replications follow a similar model. So they will typically be originated in the home country by a group of people who uh, espouse the Grameen best value principles for microfinance and also the best value principles for social business. And we've been around really in our modern form for the past four or five years. Originally, we were an overseas aid vehicle with our primary projects in the Philippines and in Cambodia. But the reason I was hired this year to be the Australian CEO is that we're investigating uh, bringing Grameen styles of microfinance and social business to Australia. With our existing projects, we've got two in the Philippines and in Cambodia. The Philippines is your traditional microfinance as a social business. So over the past four years, we've now been helping over 8,000 borrowers in over 250 centres to use microfinance as a way to increase their livelihood. And we've also now recently launched a social business hub where we have a sponsor, Oceana Gold, who's sponsoring a social business in the north of Manila where micro-entrepreneurs are growing organic vegetables, a piggery, a chicken farm and organic mushrooms in order to uh, increase their livelihood. But in uh, urban Manila, what most people don't realise is that because the Grameen model is usually, or Grameen means village, and it's usually deployed in rural or regional areas, often people are surprised that we're actually working in Metro Manila. But in fact, there is a huge population of urban poor in Metro Manila that most people don't know about. And so we're tackling that problem as well as working really closely to break even by 2019. And that's helping over 
20,000 borrowers in the next two years, which we're really excited about. In Cambodia, most people get really surprised when we talk about how our project in Siam Reap province is a chicken farm, because I want to know how that relates to microfinance. And at this stage, it doesn't, but it very much relates to Eunice's model of social business. So a social business is a business designed exclusively to solve entrenched human problems, and it has to be financially viable, unlike a charity. But unlike a normal business, all of the profits get hosed back into the operation to scale its impact. The problem that we're really solving there is for extreme poverty, malnutrition, and food insecurity. We're working 22 kilometres outside of Siam Reap province with scavengers on a rubbish dump. Initially, we were trying to help them with health and education programs, but we just realised that they weren't taking people off the dump and they were not um, as effective at solving the problem for extreme poverty. But working with the community four years ago, we we talked to them and we tried to determine what kind of business we could set up in order to offer these scavengers some local employment. And we realised that the best way to be able to do that was to organise the Khmer chickens in the region and organise that into a viable social business chicken farm where we could then employ and hire scavengers and take them through something called our livestock training program, which teaches them to become poultry operators. We've taken 100 scavengers through that program and have now employed on a full-time basis 25 over the past four years. And so many of them have gone through the ranks now, um, developing their skills and getting into leadership positions on the farm. Some of them are now being promoted to one is the deputy farm manager and the others are co-assistant deputy farm managers reporting to him. And they've taken their income from a dollar fifty to $2 dollars a day on the rubbish dump to to $300 a month, which is a significant increase. But even more than that, we're extending this chicken farm to scale it so that it can impact the local villages through our outgrower rearing program. What that means is having a second farm that we're building, which will be a layer farm where chickens will lay eggs and the eggs, instead of being reared by Grameen Australia, will be reared using our practices by the local villagers. And once the chickens are at selling age, then they'll be able to be sold back into the market that we've now created, which is quite exciting because Cambodia is being propped up by a booming tourism market, thanks to Angkor Wat, which means that the demand for chickens, um, good quality chickens that are well vaccinated with good biosecurity and are quite healthy, uh, the market demand for that has gone up. So we're very excited about being able to create that market for the local community. It's like a, like a fully integrated ecosystem. You're sort of providing the finance at one end and, and rather than just letting it flow out to where it might, you're directing it with the enterprise. Is that kind of how it fits that just sort of building the system a little bit deeper? A hundred percent. And so it's, it's really got the impact of structural change, not only structural change for the poultry industry because of the practices that we're starting to bring into Cambodia to ensure that chickens don't die prematurely, but also from an economic perspective, really reorganising where some of that wealth that comes into the Siam Reap province due to enormous attention of Angkor Wat, you would think that the enormous amount of wealth generated by that would go into lifting up the GDP of that particular province, but actually it gets redirected into the wealthier areas like Phnom Penh. And so what we're hoping to do is capitalise on that market and help to keep some of that wealth in the community by selling goods into the market that are highly attractive, 
but that are being produced by the local community based on the poultry farming practices that we're helping them to develop and scale. Mm, that issue of, of profits and capital leaving the area, is there potential there perhaps for microfinance if it was big organisations for those profits to get pulled out? How do you sort of measure the impact of whether the loans you know, have reduced poverty and that sort of thing? Is it easy to, to make those correlations? It's certainly not easy because it's quite complex. But one of the things that we've really started doing, and this is something that we have been thinking about for a long time, um, and it's still in its nascent stages, but obviously how, how do we actually measure the impact of these loans? We know that they're going into businesses in the form of working capital, and we know that it's being used for working capital, and a signal of that is that the loans get repaid. The income is obviously being generated. But then what next? You know, How do we know that there is a flow-on effects there's a couple of measures that we've started to look at, and it's still in the very early stages, but this is in the Philippines now. One of the projects that we have is sponsored by Telstra Foundation Philippines. It's a school. They put in microfinance to help the parents create a cooperative so that they can make a profit because the challenge with this particular school in the area that it's in is that many of the kids will leave school to start working because the parents can't afford to keep sending them to study. So we're measuring not only the increase of household income from the start of the project and our latest reports said that it was an increase of 25%. We're also measuring the increase in business assets um, in the families and the latest report shows that, that it's 30%. But the more important indicator is how much of this income is being spent on educational spend. So things like uniforms, um, lunch money, school fees. And there's been an increase in 45%, and that's uh, correlated with the number of children who have decided to stay in school uh, instead of leaving. So they're really promising results, but we need to have a greater period of time that we're looking at, and we also need to get it out of this its nascent stages. But some of the other indicators we'd look at is what are the conditions in the household, the nature of the pots and pans and the household goods being used improving. Where there was a house that didn't have a roof, does it now have a roof? But also leadership qualities. So there are many women who have started off in our program that have become very shy and then towards the end are starting to speak up more in the centre meetings and starting to lead them and starting to put their hand up to be involved in the local neighbourhood societies. So those are some measurements that not only is the economic conditions improving, but also the social conditions. And financial inclusion has always been that element that I think is so key to microfinance, bringing these uh, opportunities, these services to the unbankable. And, and that's clearly, I guess, what you guys capture in that sort of data. And looking at sort of the details a little bit more, the financial theory would say that small transaction costs are going to push interest rates up. Is that kind of the case? Now, there safeguards against bad operators becoming loan sharks and that kind of thing? Well, this is the real problem with microfinance. When it gets into the hands of people who don't have the spirit of solving for the problem of poverty, they use it and see it's another business model to make money for themselves. And we absolutely do not condone that type of behaviour, but some people will take advantage of a new product that they see. And from our perspective, we absolutely do. So we've got internal controls with our loan officers and our, our credit committees, but also we make sure that our interest rates. So for example, in the Philippines, they're 1%. And in Grameen America, they're 
they're a little bit higher than your traditional working capital bank business loans. But that's because the nature of microfinance is a little bit higher when you think about the educational training and mentoring costs. It's a slightly different model to just pure cost of financing. And so that's why the interest rates are a little bit higher. But they absolutely have to be capped at a certain amount. They can't go further than that because the principle of social business is that it's meant to solve the social problem and be financially viable. So you have to have interest rates in order to be financially viable and find your own expansion. But at the point that your interest rates become exorbitant, and by the way, we would never put interest rates at the load that the market can bear, but just enough to be financially viable. So there's a distinction because the load that the market can bear might be a little bit higher. But you absolutely want to make sure that your North Star is always, are we solving the problem for poverty and are we creating financial inclusion? Because if any of our model, like our interest rates or the way that we've designed the program, don't have the outcome of taking people out of poverty and actually entrench them further into poverty, we know that there's an error in design. So we always look to that North Star as a guiding principle to safeguard any of those risks that you mentioned. This field hasn't always been your calling. In a past life, you were a lawyer. Can you tell us Mm. about the journey from the corporate life to looking after Grameen Australia? I'd love to be able to say for the sanity of my 18-year-old self that it was all well-designed and it happened in a sequential fashion. But it's absolutely not the case. It was very much a series of really fortunate, almost serendipitous opportunities that came across my path that I ended up taking. I originally started off my career at Clayton Utes, which is a national law firm, as a banking and finance lawyer. But one of the things that I noticed really on in my career is I felt a massive cognitive dissonance between the work that I was doing and where I felt my calling was. I think very much when I was younger, I did get sucked into the group think at law school. I originally wanted to be a human rights lawyer, but all of my friends were moving into commercial law. And so I just ended up going with the flow and ended up applying for all these commercial law jobs, not really knowing what it was at university and finding that although it was still law, it wasn't really the areas that I felt my calling really was. And I experimented with lots of different careers. I went from one end of the capital market spectrum, which was debt capital markets, to the other end, which was equity and M&A and private equity. And then I ended up in-house at a fund manager that's Perpetual Limited, thinking that now that I'm in a more commercial entrepreneurial career, that this was going to be my calling. And for some time there, it was a wonderful job. It gave me amazing opportunities. And I ended up being appointed to quite senior roles, but it was still, there was always something inside me where I felt like I wasn't being true to myself in terms of my career. And in fact, in 2016, that voice got so loud, I ended up quitting my job without one to go to in 2017. And fortunately, that organisation put me on a sabbatical and gave me the opportunity to explore for a year what that sort of yearning was. And I did two things before I met the Grameen board. And the first one was working with a tech company called IdeaPod. So it was a social network for idea sharing with the view of surfacing and spreading far and wide the ideas that would usher in the age of humanity. And that's since pivoted to being a digital media company that's gone from 400,000 monthly readers to 7 million in seven months. And in parallel, because I was so um, nervous about this massive change I was making in my career yet again, I actually started something to hack my way into courage. I started something called F-Off, which is 
the fear of failure forum to say F off to your fear of failure and grow your potential. And through that, we ran a number of events where different people from a cross-section of industries would talk about the nature of their fear of failure and some strategies that they deployed to overcome that, including the growth mindset, including gratitude, play, you know, yearning for purpose. And these two, I guess, explorations or ventures that I had in parallel really got me into writing a lot about the business models of the future because I felt like we always were told we had to make a choice between making a financial return or a social return. Like we couldn't have both. You could either be a greedy capitalist with all of the money or a starving humanitarian who saved the world, but you couldn't You couldn't do both. And that to me really didn't ring true because I thought the only way I could realise my potential was to marry the two sides of my personality to the enjoyment of working with financial instruments and the desire to make a living you know, it was a real privilege and a real daunting experience for me because I'd never been in the NGO sector, never worked in international development or microfinance. I'd never been the CEO of an organisation. But I think now looking backwards, I can see how the career that I had, even though it may have looked unusual, brought together the kind of skills that I needed to be able to be in this role now, for which I'm super grateful. It's, it's one of the best jobs I've ever had. It's the best job I've ever had. You took the leap and you did land on your feet. But what would you say to people, maybe they're in their late 30s, they've been through university, they've got the the job they thought was their dream job, lots of money, lots of responsibility, probably lots of stress, but it doesn't quite have the purpose that they were hoping. Do you have any sort of advice on, I mean, obviously your uh, F off work might be a good start to have a look at that. Any advice there? Absolutely. And I would say that the, and this is a Eunice comment as well, the only thing limiting our experience of life is our imagination. The answer to that problem, if you're not feeling like you're marrying a lucrative career with a purposeful one, is imagining and knowing that you can. It's definitely not the answer to say, well, you know, I can't see the way, therefore it doesn't exist. Don't worry about the how. It's the knowledge and belief that that's what you want that will guide you further and further to it. One of the things that I've noticed in terms of a career strategy that I've changed my mind on is uh, I used to be a massive planner. I'm super organised, super structured and quite sequential linear in my thinking. And I always thought that if I planned my career out and I took certain steps, then I would get to a place that married all the things that I wanted. But that's not really the case. What I found is, especially now when technology is accelerating rapidly, when the nature of the job market is being disrupted, and when there are more things in front of us that we don't know the answers to, that are things that we have to pioneer, then there are things that we can deploy our experience to. There's really only one way, for me anyway, to sense make of that kind of future. And it's not by using my mind, my logical mind. It's by going with my instincts and my gut and following the feeling of what is right. You know, is this conversation with this person that is outside of my domain does it feel right? Even though I know nothing about microfinance, should I still be having a conversation with that person or will I self-sabotage and uh, cull myself out of the opportunity by using my mind and saying this is an illogical next step? Because for me, jumping out of the plane and building the parachute on the way down was one of the best decisions I could have made. And it was daunting and it was frightening, but it was never letting go of my conviction that you could marry those two options even in the absence of any proof because I think those opportunities get it 
attracted to you if you send signals that that's what you want. And it can be formulated or formed up in a way that you didn't expect. That concept of, of building the parachute on the way down, I think it's really powerful right now because the pace of change in the world is so quick that kids graduating from university today, the jobs they might have in five or 10 years don't even exist. How can you plan mm. for that? So yeah. the only thing you can really plan for is change, right? And I mean, was there a moment for you, a lot of people might be sitting in their, in their cubicle and think, oh, you know, I need to have something there, that safety net, I need to have something to go to. But I think for you, it was, it sounds like you had that faith in yourself, that you're going to trust mm. in yourself, that it will all be okay. Do you need that? I mean, that might be a, a bit much for people. Is there, is there an in-between there? You actually hit the nail on the head because one of the beliefs I used to have before was that, you know, I need to have a job in order to have financial security or I need to have, you know, you often get told like find a mentor and get a protector inside the organisation so that you're safe. You know, these are the things that you get taught as a grad in terms of the politics of working your way up the corporate ladder. And it's always about somebody else externally to you having a mastery over your fate. You've got to make sure your boss likes you or make sure you've got approval so that you've got somebody else keeping you safe. But I feel like what really got me through that was knowing that Jobs could transform so much that I could get fired tomorrow. I could lose my savings because the economic system has collapsed and the financial crisis hits again. There's all of these things externally outside of me that I simply cannot control. But the only thing I can control is knowing what my skills are, knowing that I've got the abilities within me to pick myself up no matter what. So the only security I felt like I had was in myself and I couldn't rely on anybody else. Although, of course, having that support is really key and that will empower you. There can be people with hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in their bank account that feel financially insecure and people with $37 in their bank account that can feel financially secure. It's not the content, it's the feeling that you have and the knowing that you'll be okay. That is the distinction. That confidence and empowerment really is everything. And yeah, I think you know, the more money you have, the more you fear that you have more to lose. And I think that's something that we all start to um, take on board when we get to our 30s and realize, you know, worry about the future and that sort of thing. But your message is a really great one. And, and I hope people sort of take that away um, of the importance in trusting in yourself and the education you've had and go for it. With the women in Bangladesh and the Philippines and China and Africa and around the world that haven't had an education but have had access to resources, it's that resourcefulness really that is always going to, I think, guide us. Like Professor Eunice talks about every human is a born entrepreneur. We were born to be go-getters, hunters, gatherers, problem solvers, innovators. It's a really key point that's come up in a lot of these podcast conversations is the idea that there's entrepreneurs out there that just don't have the structures we have here in Australia mm. and offering them capacity and, and offering them the empowerment has mm. such a huge multiplier effect. And I think really enjoy these conversations about sort of innovative finance and, and the potential for it. Do you have any, any crazy big moonshot ideas <laughs> that you think could have a, a really big impact? Mm, absolutely. And especially in the context of the Banking Royal Commission, there's mm -hmm. one idea that Professor Eunice um, has been talking about for 40 years, and that is that we're not going to solve this problem of poverty with charity. And we're going to solve it by creating two banking systems. I often get asked this question, well, how do you look at the credit risk of these borrowers? Because they're quite credit risky. Like, how do you protect against it if they don't have asset collateral? And that's absolutely not the right thinking, because in the context of somebody who's capital poor, they're already at the floor. It's not about looking at protecting against credit risk. There is credit risk. It's rather designing to unlock their credit potential.
it's only risk. Well, what else do you have? You only have upside. So how do we unlock the credit potential? What we currently have is a banking system where you've got two, I guess you can call them features of the borrowers. You have capital rich borrowers and capital poor borrowers. But the paradigm in which both classes of borrowers operate is only catering to one of those features and it only caters to the features of the capital rich. And so what ends up happening is you have capital poor borrowers going for loans, getting their credit worthiness assessed against the standards of the capital rich, and then they get deemed to be uncreditworthy in that first paradigm, which is nonsensical. So we already have a banking system, the existing one, that doesn't lend to the capital poor. Why not just split the financial system in two? Have one for the capital rich that doesn't lend to the capital poor and one for the capital poor that doesn't lend to the capital rich. And that would be the Grameen Bank model. Having two banking systems, one for the capital rich and one for the capital poor, could very well solve some of the challenges that we're facing with the Banking Royal Commission and the fears that even further regulation is just simply going to trickle down to those people who are already financially excluded. I think we need to think about the model in a completely different way instead of shoehorning excluded people into a system they're already excluded from, create a second system. Microfinance is facilitating that in less developed countries. Is this idea for something like Australia that we still do need that, that despite sort of the broad wealth, that there are people at the bottom that are being left out? Certainly. And in fact, this challenge was levelled at us 10 years ago when we started Grameen America. Uh, People would say, well, it doesn't work in a developed country because you've got safety nets there and the prosperity there that doesn't give rise to microfinance working. But actually, that's not the case. What we've seen over the past 10 years is that 100,000 women have now become borrowers of Grameen America. A billion dollars worth of loans have been issued. 20 different branches have been set up and the repayment rates are 99.95%. And even in Australia, even though we are a prosperous country and we've enjoyed this unbroken economic boom for the last two decades, spurred by our mining industry, we've still got 17% of Australians who are financially excluded. And that's the people who are underbanked, have low income and under or unemployed. And so you do have really large pockets of society that can't get access to banking and financial products. And so what we're actually doing now is, with the help of the founding CEO of Grameen America, Grameen Australia is investigating the viability of a Grameen style of microfinance here. Um, We were actually asked by community to see whether it could be a suitable financial intervention. And they are the communities of Grafton in regional New South Wales and Broadmeadows in Melbourne in Victoria. You know, obviously with social business, the model needs to be financially viable. So we uh, know because one of our board members has written the PhD on the viability of a Grameen style of microfinance, that there is a market here. And we also know with the existence of existing microfinance operators that there is a market here. But penetration is only 5%. So what happens to the other 95% of that market that are unserved? Is that a market that Grameen Australia could be able to service? And those are the kinds of questions that we're looking at now in our feasibility study, um, as well as how do we do this in a financially viable way? It sounds like the demand is there. Are there regulatory hurdles in Australia? Oh, massively, (laughs) massively. There's several. You know, they mirror the Grameen America challenges. So things like privacy, privacy laws and being able to share your financial data with other people. There's obviously much more stringent business regulation hurdles that we need to 
look at for the micro entrepreneurs. But from a macro perspective in Australia and the way for us to really quickly become financially viable isn't just recycling the loans that come back um, and having philanthropic or grant capital, but also being able to deploy the savings that comes out because savings is a key part of the Grameen model. But of course, in Australia, you can't deploy savings in that way unless you're an authorised deposit taking institution or a bank or a credit union. And so that poses a problem for us because one, becoming a bank is not financially viable. It's too expensive and it really doesn't happen. That's not a viable option. But nor is staying a not-for-profit or charitable organisation. So, you know, if we're a charitable organisation forever, then we're constantly looking for philanthropic funding and that's not consistent with the principles of social business. So what we're solving for at the moment is how do we create a financially viable model in the constraints of the existing regulatory system? And is it a matter of finding ways to get waivers or amends or become exempt from those regulatory burdens, which is the way of Grameen Bank. They were actually set up in Bangladesh by a special ordinance that permitted them to deploy savings. Or do we do something else like partner with a larger organisation? And those are the conversations we're having right now. Such an interesting, challenging issue to deal with. Australia is really built on that. Well, these big banks have so much power, isn't it? And, and people in Australia have very narrow views on you know, the importance of mortgages and understand lending in those ways. And that regulation is, is so embedded. So, yeah, interesting problem. But I guess at the same time, if you sort of had certain limits, I don't know, loans under $1,000, maybe that's not enough. But there can be policy to protect individuals. And I think that's a key point of we need true innovation in finance. Impact investing can get ahead of itself in terms of, just thinking about the social impact, but let's really think about some really different ways to structure the finance system so that, that, as you say, you know, maybe embed some of the social collateral elements and helps people that don't have the capital behind them might in the old models, yeah, just look too risky. You've certainly got your work cut out, but I think it's a really important debate to be having and, and great to hear that you've, you've got some interest going forward there. I'd love to dig into some more about Muhammad Yunus's background because I think that's a name that a lot of people should really know. And he's mm. written lots of books. Do you have any in particular of his that might be good for people to start with? Absolutely. Normally, I'd be talking about his latest book, which is A World of Three Zeros. So our vision is really to usher in a world of zero poverty, zero unemployment and zero net carbon emissions. And it's a reframing of the capitalist system, a capitalist system that values altruism and generosity just as much as it does financial gain. But the book that I would recommend people to start with is Banker to the Poor. The Story of Grameen Bank. That's Professor Eunice's first book. And he talks about the Grameen Bank story, the challenges that he faced when he was facing the traditional banking institutions in Chobra in Bangladesh, the principles of Grameen and how he came about designing his model and actually the failures that it had to start with that got him to think about how to adjust the model so it could be tweaked. It really talks about his idea of turning banking on its feet there was this time in the World Bank where he got challenged because of his, I guess, disrespect for the asset collateral model, that he was turning banking on its head. And he fired back saying, actually, no, banking is currently on its head. I'm turning it on its feet. So The Banker to the Poor is um, a phenomenal book by Professor Muhammad Yunus. It tells his story about setting up Grameen Bank and then winning the Nobel Prize as well. Good stuff. And do you have any other recommendations generally for sort of the world of development and innovative finance or, or even broader? 
one of my recent books or theories that I've, I'm really fascinated by is by a man called Doug Rushkoff. Uh, he wrote this book called Throwing Stones at the Google Bus, How Growth is the Enemy of Prosperity. Uh, I really enjoy this thinking because it challenges our notions or I guess our common wisdom that our system has to be based on infinite growth. So that's one I would absolutely recommend to people to read. What a title, Throwing Stones at the Google Bus. That's quite great. Mm. Does that relate to the bus that sort of buses people from San Fran to sort of Silicon Valley to the Google office yeah. and you've sort of got a bit of income inequality on all those sort of elements? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to spoil it for people, but this book and Professor Eunice's ideas also challenge the idea that growth is just the exclusive pathway to prosperity because we see phenomena that can't be explained by that concept. Like, even though we are increasing our GDP year on year, why do we have these instances of isolation, depression and loneliness increasing um, in both America and Australia? Uh, and if we have all of this growth in technology, then why do we still see that more and more people are feeling disconnected and not connected? And so it's a worthwhile inquiry into the unintended consequences of growth and how growth in and of itself isn't just the pathway to prosperity. We need to think about something else. Yeah, it's such an important developing theme. And to me, it's a question of do we need an evolution of capitalism in terms of mm. it evolving or is that a real major shift? Um, mm. And obviously big shifts can be quite dislocating and is that the need that we have? But I think the social enterprise model, profits and purpose, and this concept that you don't have to exploit the environment or your workers to make a profit. And I think the fact that people are voting with their dollars when they go shopping and with their investments is really powerful there. And digital technology with social media, so much transparency that people can now decide and they can choose not to shop at a certain place because they don't align with their values. And, and I think the corporations are waking up. So there is hope, but um, really great to hear of what you guys are doing and that you've got a big vision for the future. So it would be great to stay in touch and hear more about how Grameen Australia develops. Thank you so much, John. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and um, I really appreciate your time and thanks to your audience for caring and being passionate about these issues. Okay, good stuff. And, and if people wanted to help out with Grameen Australia, I mean, they can, I'm sure, catch up with you on social media and follow the work there. Are you guys a registered charity? Yeah, we absolutely are. We're a registered Australian charity. We're a public benevolent institution um, with deductible gift recipient status. So if you do donate to Grameen, uh, all donations above $2 are tax deductible. And you can find us on grameen.org.au. That's G-R-A. M-E-E-N.org.au. And for those people who are struggling to think of what to get for somebody for Christmas, somebody who might have it all, why not think about giving them the gift of legacy? Donating $50 a month um, on behalf of this person could greatly impact people in the Philippines and Cambodia and Grameen, Australia. $300 loan actually can get recycled twice in a year. So if you donated $300, that actually turns into 10 loans over five years. And for anybody that does uh, venture capital returns, uh, 10x return over five years is actually pretty special. So only $300 could go a very, very long way um, in the Grameen model. There we go. Great sentiment to leave it on. And a reminder that it's almost Christmas, which is uh, doing my head in. I can't believe we're in December already. <laughs> I know. All right. Summer's here. Okay. Thank you for that, Kat. Really great chat. Thank you so much, John. Cheers. 
and certainly with F off, that's great. Is that still operating? It is. I'm actually having a conversation with my co-founders on Tuesday because we went on a bit of a hiatus this year um, due to my job change and their job and life changes. So what I want to do next year is continue with F off, but I've actually evolved it, not just to being events-based, but I'm also turning it into a coaching program because one of the things that I um, have realised people have a fear of failure around is, uh, well, I guess it's threefold. It's a particular situation. It's conversations that are hard to have and it's a transformation in the areas of life, career and relationships. And so what my vision is for it is to be able to run an F-off masterclass for, say, a half day for people to really drill into their fear of failure. Those that want to go a bit deeper can go through a 12-week courage accelerator that goes through habits, mindsets, challenges that they can go through to really hack their way into courage. And then finally, a coaching program. So um, I actually coach CEOs and people in transition. So people who are really keen on having sort of a long-term experience with transforming their fear can go through that coaching program as well. And so that's something I do on top of Grameen in the other 40 hours of the week. 